0: This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B.
1: Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm your host, Norman B. Coming up, my conversation with Lauren S. Carden, who's written a truly interesting book, now, Lauren is an Associate Professor of English at the University of Alabama. She's cleverly traced the trajectory of fashion as its path relates to contemporary American literature. Now it's an intriguing idea that Ms Carden explains in her book, Fashioning Character. I'm also going to share with you a sort of conversation with a true fashion icon, Betsy Johnson. Now, Very rarely do I find myself unable to ask a question of a guest. You'll understand as you listen to the edited portions of a very unusual chat with Betsy Johnson. First, our good friends, the delightful Hannah and Ollie, a.k.a. Pella, have a new EP. Here's the title cut, Little Ceremonies.
2: There you are looking so heavenly Emblem and, and I, the soul, the symmetry. Oh.
1: Carden is my guest. Her new book is titled Fashioning Character, and the subtitle is Style, Performance, and Identity in Contemporary American Literature. Lauren, welcome to Life Elsewhere.
3: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
1: Got to ask you so, why and what prompted you to say, okay, I understand about literature. Why do I want to link this to fashion?
3: I. I actually have a background in art history. So I've always been really interested in visual studies and um, just the ways that literature parallels other forms of culture. So that's, that's always been an interest of mine, whether that's film, music, food, fashion, art. And I actually lived in New York for two years while I was writing my dissertation. And in New York, it's You're just kind of bombarded by fashion, whether that's street style or high fashion, Bryant Park or it's it's everywhere. And I just I really became so fascinated with it. Um, This is around the same time that shows like Project Runway and America's Next Top Model were very popular. So I was really absorbing a lot about fashion from uh, where I was living and what I was watching. And it made me look at the works of literature that I'd read many times in a different way. I started paying more attention to, um, to the details of, of dress. And I should mention also that in my, in my family, in my ancestry um, you know, I'm a descendant of, of Jewish immigrants. Some of him worked in high fashion and were part of this garment industry um, that really thrived in the, in the early 20th century. And, and actually did the high-low thing. They had an atelier in Paris, but they also had a, you know, sort of the equivalent of an H&M version of their clothes in yeah. New York. So there, yeah. it really was a lot of different areas of interest coming together for me.
1: Yes. So we both have a little bit of a background, sort of inside knowledge, so to speak, of of the industry, the business, because it is an industry. And I think sometimes we forget about that, particularly when we're talking about literature and fashion. And literature itself, of course, is, a, is another industry in some respects, but I think we tend to sort of shy away from saying that. So literature, I've just got to ask you this, first of all. So contemporary American literature, and I kind of so wanted to say to you, I and mean, I'm going to say it anyway, <laughs> contemporary worldwide literature or contemporary Western literature, why just American?
3: Well, first of all, that's, I mean, the simplest answer is that's my area of specialization (laughs) my field. Um, But also I'm really interested in the American fashion industry because of the ways that it departed from a kind of Paris centric fashion industry in the, mainly in the 20th century, but you can see the roots of that even earlier. I think when I think of Paris and fashion, I think of couture. I think, of, um, I think of sort of the origins of high fashion. I think of fashion week. I think of it as kind of an elitist thing, even though everyone, you know, Paris is, of course, important yeah. among many different classes there. When I think of American fashion, I think of how can we market this to as many people as possible and commercialize it and make sure everybody feels that they have access to some version of fashion so that they'll buy more and and we can make more money. So I was interested in that shift from fashion, even in the U.S. We see this on the show, The Gilded Age, a little bit. I don't know if you've been watching that. Yes. Yes. um, Shifted from this very elite kind of uh, inaccessible thing to something that everybody feels that they can access on some level, um, even if it's It's through fast fashion or whether it's through popular culture. So I'm really interested in that aspect of it, the gradual, um, whether that is, it's true or not, the gradual democratization and commercialization of the industry.
1: Well of course as you as you already kind of sort of alluded to I I knew the answer to the question I mean it was a kind of, <laughs> kind of it wasn't a trick question but I just wanted to hear it from you so thank you for saying that my guest is Lauren S Cardin the book is called Fashioning Character Style Performance and Identity in Contemporary American Literature so you've broken it all down into in in the contents and I want to just let my listeners Listeners understand how you've broken things down chapter by chapter. In number one, Plath, Sexton, and the new look. Lovely, because I think here we are in in 2022, and in some respects, people who are interested in fashion and literature may have forgotten just how important the new look was after the Second World War. We'll come back to that. Chapter two, the beat writers and the dawn of street fashion. Ah, yes. Now, this is a thing we could talk about for ages because street fashion has become main fashion i mean ripped jeans now are on are on the runways in paris number three i love this one afrocentric fashion in the writing of walker morrison and Sana. ah yes number four american indian literature and the legacy of misappropriation and i should let my listeners know there's lots of pictures throughout this book and when you get to this chapter, what do you find? You find Cher in one of her outfits. Um, I think it was on the on the Sonny and Cher show, wasn't it, where she dresses up in a, in a sort of a mock Indian regalia. Number five, and this one I think is very important. I'd like to spend a little time talking about this. Gendered fashion and transgender literature. Conclu- oh, then there's a conclusion. Uh, I love the way you've broken down these chapters and, and and gone into it in each chapter. Talk to me about about breaking things down into chapters and into periods and, and coupling it with the literature. Was that, I don't want to say was it easy to do, but how what was the what was the journey for you like doing that, breaking the chapters down and matching it up with literature of the period?
3: Uh, first, first of all, short answer, it was very challenging. Yeah. Um, and second of all, to put it into context, this was initially part of my previous book, which was called Fashion and Fiction. And which focuses more on earlier 20th century, late 19th century. And that I quickly saw was never going to be one book. Um, first, because there was such a demarcation in what happens in the fashion industry and in literature around the mid 20th century, uh, but also just because it was too much material. Yeah. No pun intended. So <laughs> I for this book, I was really focused on what happens after World War II and how to how to center on a few really important patterns of um, development in both the fashion industry and in literature. Yes. So sometimes I was finding, I was finding that there was something important I had to address, like with the chapter on transgender literatures that seemed really critical for contemporary conversations. Uh, but sometimes I felt like, uh, you know, I have two chapters devoted to cultural appropriation, yep. one more focused on African-American literature and the other Indigenous literatures, and I initially was conceiving of another chapter on Asian American literature, but I was like, I don't want to have just this repeated concept yes. applied to yes. different. Then why am I leaving out these other groups? Right. Um, similarly, I had wanted to have a chapter talking about some '80s. Uh, I just I'm fascinated by 1980s fashion and the sort of glamorization of the the yuppie and of of wealth and lifestyles of the rich and famous and dynasty. Um, but when I was applying it to the works of, you know, people like Brett Stanellis, a lot of that analysis just felt too obvious yes. and it didn't enrich the project the ways that some of the others did. So a lot of it was a matter of thinking about the most important things to say about this connection between fashion and literature. And the other was, what could I leave out, but still, you know, still sort of get my message across.
1: Now, this is the interesting part for me when I talk to writers is the self editing part. It's not, no <laughs> matter what the book is, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, whatever it's the, before you give it to an editor, the self editing that you have to do. I'm fascinated about that because it's really, I, I just think what a challenge that is because You've got all this information you've collated so much knowledge and, and details and whatever and then you go okay i can't put it's like a, it's like having a child in some respects isn't it That <laughs> you go oh i can't put that one in. that one's not just quite what i need to put it i just feel for you <laughs> it's it's edited, in, in, in edited yes um, let's just quickly talk about uh, the new look and for, for for people that aren't familiar with this things changed after the second world war and dior Um, wonderfully came out with these beautiful sweeping long skirts that were just magnificent. And it really, in some respects was a sign of the times that, you know, we were now going to be very uh, extravagant. Can you talk about the new look and how it applies to to American literature?
3: Oh, yes, that's a lot, but I will try to to distill. Um, First of all, during, I think it's important to contextualize it with what had happened during uh, the past couple decades that preceded the new look, yes, which was yes. because of the depression, uh, because of the the blockades during World War II, uh, because of fashion of rations on fabric, yes. um, and just because of women increasingly entering the workforce out of necessity, women's fashions were less reliant on Paris runways. And yes. in fact, for a while were cut off completely. Um, fabrics were, I mean, it was just fewer clothes. It wasn't voluminous, it was more streamlined, more professional looking. You know, if you think of like um, Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca, that's kind of the look, almost masculine at times, the fedora and everything. Um, and so after World War, too, with this huge expansion of the middle class and veterans returning and um, wanting men to kind of dominate the workforce. There was so much cultural pressure for women to, to leave, especially white middle-class women, to leave the workforce um, and really be wives and homemakers and, and purchase a lot of these new products that were being invented. And, you know, yeah. just, and um And in Paris, Dior really represented this, on the one hand, celebration that we can go back to these voluminous fashions and having to, you know, and complicated women's fashions and femininity. It was on the one hand a celebration and his work is, you know, from that period is beautiful. But on the other hand, it's also like a very creating very scripted looking roles for women. And that's reflected in the literature of the period, too.
1: Yes. And then, of course, we skip into well not skip but we, we merge into the 60s where mm-hmm. things change yet again. And this really comes into your your chapter um, on the beats. But it's like 50s to 60s and 60s to yeah. 70s. It kind of melds into one another, doesn't it? Talk to me about that, that, that period, that period where it changes.
3: I would say the change is happening at the same time because just as there are people that are um, trying to fit into this new middle-class look and lifestyle, there are people that resist it, that get, this is sort of a mass production of, of, you know, a prototype. And I think Jack Kerouac and even, uh, and Allen Ginsberg and the women I mentioned in that chapter, like Joyce Johnson, understood I want to be a part of this other thing. I don't, I don't see myself as conforming to this standard. And um, so I think it's, it's happening simultaneously. And this is where, this is why I start the book during this period. I just see that this is to quote Norman Mailer, one is hip or one is square during this time period. You're either feeling that pressure to fit in and embrace the standard or you are really uncomfortable with it and you reject it. And do you think, what can I wear to show that I'm rejecting it? What could I do to signify my rejection of this status quo?
1: Yes. And of course the, the, wearing jeans and, and, and denim became just a de rigueur and and a lot of it was 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 because of pop groups of rock musicians and yes. and, and not just the, the beat poets it, it, it sort of merged into that but then of course we had at the same time happening um Barbara Halunkey in London with Bieber and all of a sudden a Mary Quant of course with yes. with miniskirts which miniskirts. was a whole right. whole different thing. Where does that come into the story?
3: Well, there's more. We start to see an increased kind of transnationalism, too. I mean, we see that with blues and other forms of African-American music yep. entering the UK and then Beatles and rock and roll and yep. the Stones entering, you know, going back to the U.S. So there's a kind of there's more. I would say there's a lot in common in um, in Britain and in the U.S. during this period uh, in that. I mean, first of all, London starts to become a little bit more of a fashion capital. Um, already, we're starting to see the destabilization of Paris as the center of all things fashion. Yes. Um, you get the mod look of that period, which is yes. so important. And, yeah. and that's yeah. a big part of youth fashion. But I think preceding that is the, the rebellion that starts in the 50s. With not only the beats, I think you're, you're right. It's not just the, the writers and the artists, but um, Hollywood, which is just, you know, has yes. such a huge audience, people like Marlon Brando and James Dean looking so cool in their white T-shirts and jeans or, yes. you know, motorcycle jackets. And uh, that starts to become not only really, really cool, but it becomes in many ways, that particular look becomes conflated with this kind of American identity, and um, I think that really shifts American fashion and these ideas of of uh, what it means to look to just look uh, trendy and and cool in American culture.
1: Yes, I th- there's something about this which I just wanted to throw in because looking at it from a, a from a British perspective, um, Elvis took took mm-hmm. such an important place not just the music but the way he looked the way he dressed which did did really sort of change things in the UK specifically with a kind of rocker look which Elvis obviously had but there's something else I want I guess it's going to be back to literature and this is I guess not literature in the true sense although I'm going to let you decide but I remember coming to America in oh I'm thinking the very early 70s which dates me of course And I remember picking up, and I think, and I have to, and I've I've got it somewhere in my storage, but I remember picking up a magazine, which I think was Glamour magazine at the time. And they had like a strip, like a strip cartoon, except it wasn't. It was photographs of young men and young ladies. It was like a story. It was like a a photo story, which has gone out of fashion now. Once upon a time, those kind of things were used quite a lot in magazines. So it was a story of, Men, young men dressed in kind of what I would consider to be like English mod style and girls with with sort of, you know, swinging London kind of looks. And the speech bubbles coming out of their mouths were, hey, this is hip, man, that kind of thing. It was, that, that was totally quaint and totally of its time. But it was in a lot of respects. It was, I guess, in the sort of farthest reaches. It was literature because it was in a magazine, because somebody had written the story and somebody, had you know, composed all that there was that going on at the time it's a small little thing but it was that was going on which I think was influencing a lot of things particularly here in America
3: I agree um in terms of just fashion journalism that influences it's a huge influence on popular culture yeah it shapes it shapes global fashion but it also um it does impact literature I mean it's it's everywhere. This is what establishes the mode. I think that in terms of the ways that fashion journalism operates and tells these stories has changed over time. And I think those moments in the 70s, that's one kind of, um, it's one zeitgeist. If you look at Vogue issues from the 1920s, it's all Art Deco kind of illustrations in these little tableaus. And then if you look at, I mentioned um, a photo story with Uh, The actor Garrett Hedlund, who played Neil Cassidy's character, Dean Moriarty, in the film version of On the Road. Vogue does these things where they, even though you know it's a model and an actor or something, they do a series of photos that tell a story. And instead of having the bubbles, it's a little more... Uh, yes the captions will tell the story in a way right. so yes. it just has different iterations but you want to see yourself in that fantasy is the idea yeah,
1: exactly i want to switch now to afrocentric fashion in the writing of walker morrison and sienna before we get to that let my listeners know if you've just joined us lauren s carden is my guest Fashion in character is the title of the book with the subheading of style performance and identity in contemporary american literature Let's talk about Afrocentric fashion. And, and when we get to this chapter, there is a stunning photograph, and I remember it very, very well, of the lovely Marsha Hunt with her wonderful, wonderful Afro at the time. And just before you start talking about it, I just want to say that at that moment in time, to see an African-American woman with an Afro like that was, for a lot of people specifically in this country, shocking. It was, it was kind of, wow. There are people that ooh. Like that. Talk to me about that, uh, the Afrocentric fashion and, and the authors.
3: Yes. Um, this was such an important moment, um, just culturally and in terms of uh, the black arts movement, but also in terms of fashion and popular culture. Um, women, uh, African-American women who had been made to feel a kind of shame for having for celebrating their nat- natural hair texture, um, suddenly saw this image or saw, you know, the Afro celebrated as this kind of iconic beauty. It this is this is something beautiful. In fact, make it bigger, comb your hair out and make it as big as possible. And that's being celebrated. So I think in terms of just representation, it's a very, very positive thing. Um, Afro, the Afrocentric style really is rooted in Black culture. It's African-Americans deciding, you know what, we're not going to conform to, um, you know, straightening our hair or the conch or, um, you know, the, the hot comb and the oil. we're going to just yes. resist that. And we're going to celebrate our natural hairstyles, um, the Afro, dreadlocks, cornrows, box braids, you know. Different uh, different styles have, have come in and out since then, but um, it then changes because on the one hand, in becoming mainstream, you know that image of Marcia Hunt, there were images of her circulated in Vogue. So on the one hand, yes. it's it's really good for destabilizing these white, you know these white standards of beauty that had go- had governed the fashion industry for so long, and saying you know what, there are a lot of different forms of beauty. But it also leads to this cultural appropriation. All of a sudden people are selling Afro wigs and white women are wearing them um, who've never had to think about their hair or be self-conscious about their hair. And they're like, oh, this is a cool trend. I'm gonna wear this big Afro wig. So, you know, with anything in fashion, I, I often find that there's something really promising and wonderful, but there's also, you have to kind of maintain the awareness of how it's complicated and sometimes problematic too.
1: Yes. Do you think that the writing at the time, do you think like uh, I'm I'm just pick anybody like Toni Morrison? Do you think there's anybody at the time that was writing an African-American writer that was um, exploring the fashion at the time was was using that as part of their their writing or uh, acknowledging it?
3: Yes, uh, I absolutely. I think that two of the authors that I talk about in that chapter Alice Walker and yes. um, Toni Morrison were writing in the 70s, and of, of course, this movement really starts in the 60s. Um, and they have conflicted feelings about it. You know, I think Walker's story "Everyday Use" is very polarizing in terms of how critics read the character of Dee. You know, on the one hand, she's so yes. <laughs> she's so dismissive of her her mother and sister as kind of backward and and so quick to embrace this this Afrocentric movement that's popular right now. And to to be like, I'm, I get to claim this, this as my own, my own style and my own heritage when really she knows nothing about it. Um, And I think in Tara Baby by Toni Morrison, you see a model who doesn't see herself in that image. She's very light skinned. um, And in fact has likely booked a lot of her Morrison's narration implies she's booked a lot of her, her gigs from being this very light skinned She's called the Copper Venus, um, yes. being someone that can appear on the cover of white magazines. So um, I think there's an acknowledgement of how complicated you can't just say, okay, we have a dark skinned woman with an Afro in a white fashion magazine. And that means, you know, we've won. They're showing how um, this movement is more complicated than we think. And yes. there, there are a lot of different um, subjectivities involved, including, you know, this mother from a an older generation and this new college student and this lighter skinned model that lives in Europe. So she's, I think they really fill in some of those blanks and get us to think about it a little bit differently.
1: Yes. You know, I should just let you know that reading your book prompted me to go and reread Tar Baby, which I hadn't read. I hadn't visited for quite some time. So I got it out of my huge library and, and and read it yet again just the other day and, and, and thoroughly enjoyed it so after afro-centric fashion we go on to american indian literature and a legacy of misappropriation this is such an important part of your book it really is let's talk about that start from the beginning for me in because there is a beginning and and, and really seriously there's no end is there i mean it's there's a there's a story of misappropriation which is a horrible story, but mm-hmm. we have to talk about it.
3: Yes. Um, I really became introduced to in, Indigenous fashions by uh, a Project Runway contestant, Patricia Michaels, who designed the look that's on the cover of the book, actually. Um, she's, she was so interesting, and I, I saw her struggling with the format of the show a little bit because I think she's someone that's used to going... Uh, so in-depth into a single piece. She does a lot of hand dyeing and, and uh, painting fabric and things like that, which are, um, which are common among, among the sort of Southwestern tribes as ways to treat textiles. And it just got me very curious about different tribal fashions. You know, I tended to have this very, I think a very popular misconception of what native fashions were, you know, and kind of Alighted all of the tribes together like it made me think feathers and beads ah, and yes. beadwork and hides and and really it's so specific to region and when you start researching these tribal histories they're so specific even to the envi- the local environment um, but they've also really evolved over over time so um i was also at the time enjoying a lot of native american writers i love the work of sherman alexi um, and I'd read a lot of Leslie Marmon Silko and Louise Erdrich, and the ways that they represent what uh, people in a particular tribe wear, like contemporary people who might live in cities, might live on the reservation, but also the the way that they sometimes poke fun at white characters that try to wear tribal fashions. Yes. Um, and so that got me very curious, and um, the ways that someone like Alexi portrays it it's it's almost like a poking fun but if you look at the bloggers some of whom I I, uh, reference in the book like uh, Jessica Metcalf there's a very serious kind of indictment of that practice of appropriation of um, Sherman Alexi and some of the authors there's a poking fun at these white characters that appropriate but I think there's also a more serious kind of appropriation or as I discuss misappropriation, that contemporary bloggers like Jessica Metcalf, whom I talk about in the book, um, really point to. Like when you take something sacred, like a a totem pole or um, a headdress or war bonnet, something that has a kind of sacred significance and trivialize it in a way. Yes, Because first of all, it's it's trivializing a sacred symbol, um, but also it's taking something that people aren't going to know the significance behind this symbol. They're going to know the popular culture, mass produced representation of it. Uh, But there's the other issue that it creates a cycle of misinformation about, um, you know, what tribes use these practices or what does this actually represent? Is this just something that's cool to wear or does it have this other significance? And there's a lot of misinformation about indigenous people anyway, um, so it just kind of recreates that cycle. So yes. I think that's the other issue.
1: Yes. As you're as you're going, I'm going through the chapter on American Indian literature and misappropriation. We then it, it segues in some respects into the next chapter, which I'm going to get the correct title. Um, and am I right in saying that it segues in because it it does seem to me that you make references about about gender. We go into chapter five gender gendered fashion and transgender literature let's let's just start at the beginning of that because I think and you point this out in the book there's a lot of confusion even right now as we speak about gender and transgender and and there's there's all kinds of outside of the people that are completely ignorant and 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 have no sort of don't have a will to understand that some people choose to be um of a gender that they're not they weren't they identify differently I, I, i'm i'm seeing now i'm struggling I know to, i know yeah I know. yeah so but as as you understand what i'm saying is is that there are a lot of people unfortunately that still tend to just want to not deal with this. It's it, I, I, And I kind of think that some people, it's like with homosexuality, people are just scared of the unknown, except they're fascinated at the same time, which is why they, they talk about it so much. So, so let's talk about this chapter.
3: Yes, I think you're right that a big part of it is fear of the unknown. I don't understand, you know, maybe they understand something like drag because it's so much, so entrenched now in American popular culture, at least, that... Um, that's a little bit less less strange, but there's this problem of conflating um, cross-dressing or or drag with transgender identity. These can intersect, but they're they're not the same. So exactly.
2: also, yes, a
3: lot of yeah. what I do in this chapter is first to try to untangle some of these terms, but I, I think something you said about people's fear of the unknown. I would also say that it's also a frustration with not being able to categorize things in a way we're used to categorizing them. I'm thinking about the backlash when Target decided to remove gender labels from its toys and its stores. You know, this is something that seems so innocuous, but the idea of gender neutral toys or that it's bad to, you know, to, uh, reify gender binaries is so shocking to people who've always thought this way that they're really uncomfortable with fluidity and um the idea of of getting rid of gender binaries when really that's always been a part of human nature um and nature more generally it's just we haven't really brought it to the forefront and had a conversation about it
1: you know lauren there was and i'm Excuse me, because I tend to go off on a tangent sometimes, but it's okay. There was there was in the 70s, there was a word that was banded around and it was used primarily by fashion companies, by clothing companies, unisex.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, but it, you, you saw the word being used in, in all kinds of ways, but particularly in fashion, it was used, oh it, it's these pants are unisex, you know, this, this top is unisex. It's gone out of fashion. Now, you don't you don't hear unisex as such. And I think it's probably because at the time it didn't mean transgender or a different gender. It meant, oh, this is good for men and women or boys and girls. And and I'm just curious to know, because this ties in now with with what you're talking about in your book, how things have changed and how literature has changed and how literature appropriates um, transgender or, or, or gender differences, can you talk about that? About how things have changed?
3: Oh wow, there are so many ways, yeah. but I'll try yeah. to hide. again. I'll try to distill. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think first of all, there's the idea of gender, which, um, at least in in my field, we tend to think of as a social construct. There's no reason you have to be uh, male or female as uh, in terms of how you physically express yourself. Right. There's, no, yes. there's no real reason why I have to wear women's clothing or um, wear my hair long in a feminine style. This is how I choose to present. This feels natural to me. Um, for some people who maybe were assigned the sex female at birth, um, it might make sense to them to present as more masculine. And sometimes just having maybe short hair or wearing, you um, kind of gender neutral clothing is enough to feel comfortable in your presentation. Um, For some people, it might mean that they're transgender and they take hormones to, you know, because they don't like the feeling of having breasts or they don't, you
2: know,
3: things like that. And then some people have surgery. So there's just different ways on the spectrum of presenting as male, female, or there are people that are gender fluid or non-binary, who really feel most comfortable when they see the interplay of features and, you know, maybe go by they or go by a a pronoun like a zero or something that's kind of a fusion or an in-between. So that's something that I was really exploring in this chapter because when it comes to the stories that we tell or the, the stories that we hear about, it's much more commonly something like Caitlyn Jenner where you had this really, really masculine man who was like a, you know, Olympic athlete and then re-emerges on the cover of Vanity Fair as this beautiful woman in a bodice and, you know, looks very old Hollywood glam. We're much more comfortable with that narrative because it preserves the gender binaries. We're less comfortable with someone who was, you know, maybe assigned sex female at birth and settles for something in between. Like, yes. we're kind of like, why would you do that? What does that mean? And you still... And you still date men. Why didn't you just stay a woman? You know, like there's all these questions. So um, a lot of it is this idea that gender is constructed and gender is much more fluid than we're, we uh, are comfortable with. To say nothing about, about sex, which, is, which can also be much more complicated than we're accustomed to thinking.
1: <laughs> yes. You know, as I'm reading this particular chapter of your book of fashioning character, I was thinking towards the future, Lauren. I was thinking, I wonder what Lauren will write about continuing on in, I don't know, a couple of years time. And one thing that struck me, and again, I apologize. I'm I'm, I'm diverging off a little bit, but I was wondering if Lauren will take into into account tattoos and body piercings and body modification. Any thoughts?
3: You know, that's funny because someone asked me recently on a, uh, someone asked me recently about tattoos. I don't know as much about tattoos personally. I think part of it is that um, I'm I'm Jewish, and a lot of the you know the Jewish culture growing up, a lot of people don't get tattoos. That's changing, right. um, and I've been learning more about them differently. And I think there's a whole interesting history behind tattoos that can be very regional specific, very cultural specific, even class specific. Sometimes um, I think. So I think there's a lot that a lot to be said. I will say the chapter on gender identity really made me want to explore um body modification. There's some transgender scholarship that talks about, you know, we modify our bodies in all these different ways. People get cosmetic surgery, um, people, people get tattoos, people get piercings, and yet people seem so aghast at the idea of taking hormones or Um, getting top surgery or, you know, getting gender confirmation surgery. So why are we comfortable with certain kinds of body modification and not others? Like if we're saying, I want to do these things to my body because now I feel like I look like I'm supposed to look, why is it so hard to understand in this other capacity? So yes, that's absolutely something that there's a lot more to say about. Um, I'd have to see how that relates to literature, but it's definitely something I'm interested in.
1: Well, let me throw this idea out to you because like this sort of like circles back into literature. And that is, I've always had this theory. i rather always had, I do have this theory that most men specifically here in America, and I'm sorry, I'm not being mean when I say this, (laughs) are, are, are kind of like, threatened when women cut their hair if women have short hair on the whole in general most men are most males are kind not offended so much as it's threatening because they think that it's more feminine for women to have long hair and by the same token I've spoken to a lot of women over the years that say that I know I know they would look gorgeous with short hair but wear this sort of shield because they will always respond and say well my husband likes it or my boyfriend likes it and I don't want to get it cut because just want to ask you about that because these are like the labels and the standards that we are you mentioned about little little while ago that we we are so used to when we get used to just using that as an example is that we are into this kind of the, the sort of identity that we we go by: women have long hair, men have short hair. Of course, that was all changed in the sixties with rock bands and whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but just give me your take on it now, two thousand and twenty-two, about just these these standards that we sort of uh, 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 we attain, we we we, we keep at. Uh, uh, is that true, or am I just sort of imagining things that that men are threatened by <laughs> women with short hair?
3: I think there are men that, well, I think there are men that subscribe to a kind of traditional ideal of masculinity that are threatened by any kind of gender bending, whether that's hair, that's through clothing, that's through, I I definitely think that exists. I think that it's being thrown to the wind more and more. I mean, especially now that TikTok is really um, influencing the fashion industry, I think it's just a lot of that's out the window. Um, At the same time, what you're talking about is making me think of something that goes back to the 1920s. I mean, I had a chapter in my previous book about um, Faulkner's uh, William Faulkner's novel, Mosquitoes, um, Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises and um, Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. And what I talked about in those chapters is how the modern woman with her short hair and her masculine clothing gives the male characters anxiety. Like they have a severe anxiety about modernity, um, both in terms of what it represents more broadly, but more specifically what it means for their own masculinity. What is, who am I, if women can look like this and be strong like this and act like this and play golf or, you know, there's this constant, because masculinity is, is such a construct um, I think there are men that don't really explore their gender identity. They just cling to that as, they okay, that's who it. I am. This is what yes. it means to be a man. Don't threaten my perception of, of this. The way that people might cling to whiteness or any other representation yes. of power and privilege. Yes. So um, I think that's really what that, what that speaks to.
1: Of course, there's oddballs like me that would love to have been alive in the 1920s with women, women with short hair and those incredible dresses that they wore. I mean, I, I admit to it, I just think it's so sexy, but then, you know, of <laughs> I, so. Lauren, I wish we had a lot more time. We have to sort of do this thing where we say, thank you very much. I, I, I really think this is an interesting book as you could explore some very interesting ideas for me, as you can probably tell, I like to sort of go off on all kinds of tangents and find all kinds of things to sort of, you know, take me off in different directions. And you've you've helped me do that with this book. You've helped me read, read other books again. Uh, I recommend it. Uh, fashioning Character, Lauren S. Cardin is the author. The subtitle is Style, Performance, and Identity in Contemporary American Literature. It's a great read. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed talking to you, Lauren. Thank you for joining us at Life Elsewhere.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it as well.
1: Coming up next, something rather different. You're going to hear edits from a very long and curious conversation with fashion icon Betsy Johnson. This was recorded during the height of the first wave of the coronavirus pandemic, now, the main reason I've not aired this before is because in the original recording, the dialogue goes off in such wild and quite honestly strange directions. Betsy loves to talk, as do I. But as you'll hear, Miss Johnson is determined to get the first and the last words. She's a lovely lady. So here then is my sort of conversation with the legendary Betsy Johnson. Betsy, are you- With us. Hi Betsy, how are you? Hey, good. Oh, what's your accent? Uh, well, you know it's so very weird. When I was reading your book, I'm thinking to myself, this is taking me back to when I first was in New York. Are you English? I am. Yes, <laughs> yes. I remember. So I, I remember going to paraphernalia. That's how. That's how crazy this is. Kidding. No, no. That was such a one of a Weird little thing to happen. Yes, up um, I mean, uptown. Yes, and Watson I'm. an avenue. It was I, bizarre. I'm thinking, it was Right next to Vidal Sassoon. Yes, and this, what, what's really weird is that I knew Vidal from London. Were you a musician? Were you no, a star? No, no, no. I was a graphic designer back in those <laughs> days. I was a graphic designer, but I. I pro- gig, well, <laughs> let's talk about. For being interested in me, <laughs> but we were cut out of the same powder. We sure are. So let's so talk about. Your book, Betsy, A Memoir. Now, I have thoroughly good enjoyed book. it. I've thoroughly enjoyed it because... So, go ahead. You read it? I uh, yeah, I read I mean, it. I think it looks good. I need a book with pictures. <laughs> yes. And
0: thank God Viking let me Yeah. Take in some doodles and, and color. So, for me, it's a book... If I can't flip through a book and get excited, I can't read it. Now, you know, I'm a magazine girl. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I need my visuals, and um, so yeah. At the end, I'm really pressed to get it more good looking and artsy and cute and all that, and they let me do it. And you yeah, know, I'm really proud of this little book that I never thought in a billion years. I think but it. I'm, a... still reali- I'm still realizing that the book realizes, but that. that as i was growing up who realizes any of that you know you're always not struggling but you're always like okay what am i going to do next now how's this you know no confidence at all just do 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 and go 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 and
2: i was just really lucky to be this
0: little white waspy girl but i lived downtown in a loft and hung out at Knox's. Did you ever hear of Knox's, Kansas
1: City? Oh, absolutely. I, I used to go to the back room very often. I mean, I... I, could, I oh, right. Yes. Candy room. Oh, yes. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Yeah. I left a guy
0: once with a toothbrush and ended up in the Chelsea Hotel. For <laughs> <you>. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, okay, my world is this. I go to my sewing machine place. Yep. I go to Knox's. I go to the Chelsea. Yes. And so I ran into... I mean, had a time
1: zone from 64 to about 71. It all went down
0: the tubes and
2: kind of od It was the end of that. Yeah. Um, it
1: was an amazing time. It really enjoy. was, Betsy. I Very quickly, let me tell you. I was in Max's one night, and I was introduced to a very, very beautiful young lady, um, an African-American model at the time that used to work for us, now related really, to and the next thing I know, I was meant to be in New York for two weeks, and I stayed for three months at a, a, a little place on Gramercy Park. That's that's kind of my... the let right? yeah, oh, so. I love that area. <laughs> let's, uh, let's just talk a little bit about your book, because... Wow. So, um, that couldn't have been who would your top model be, or, or... I mean, it wasn't true. I, I was so lucky, because the guy that did
0: paraphernalia, English guy, he... He was absolutely good friends with Twiggy, with Julie Christie, right. with all these 60s people yes. in a really supportive, happy little campers doing something new, bringing something very timely to everyone, but being very insecure <laughs> behind what they were doing and what was going on, but it, it was a... it was. It was a time of real adventure. It
1: Invention, invention yes. It really I mean, was. Between the moon and pantyhose, God. <laughs> girdlesky, maiden form, pointy god yeah. underwear,
0: just as pointy white patent leather, little um, kitten heels. I mean, but it was very good girl. It y- wasn't at all sexy.
2: Fun, yeah. or, you know, I mean, that 60s, I think, was...
0: The first and last time that that fashion changed so drastic. Because yes. weren't we coming off Eisenhower, very conservative, and yeah, yeah. Just So the 60s, we just flipped in a, into a completely new world. And I think the most creative time zone in my whole life, I'll never, no other decade or whatever, what are 10 years? Is that decade No other chunk of time was as exciting as the 60s. And no other time brought so much invention. I'm just sorry I had to work so hard. (laughs) I I couldn't experience LSD.
1: (laughs) Betsy, looking... all those drugs I wanted to take, but I couldn't be at work the next day if I did. Exactly. Betsy, looking back... But at night I hung around who we're doing and nobody
0: asked Are you? What are you doing? What are you taking? So I kind of got away with being the clean kid. Yes. In a, 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 you know, in just a self-expressive world. Yeah. Well, it's all about time. I think you know you have to stand the test of of time, and you don't know how that's going to happen.
1: But all you got to do is continue to do. Yes. Where are you calling from? I'm calling... Are you calling from Florida? I am. I'm calling from Florida, yes. That's exactly yep. right. Yep. yep. And you're in Malibu, yeah? Yeah,
0: so... Yeah. My family, for some strange reason, after 55 years in New York, the stars were in alignment, and my daughter's ex-husband grew up in Malibu, so the grandkids knew Malibu, which is... Nobody needed to be anywhere but in front of their computer. I still... Draw, take a picture of it, and send a text. I don't connect with any of these machines. I just can't. It's just not. It just doesn't work. And I can do it from anywhere. And I am in my little trailer park home, looking out at the beautiful mountains and a big chunk of ocean, um, in a friendly little, Weatherfield, Connecticut, and it's the same kind of vibe as what I grew up in. And with quite sophisticated people who usually live in L.A.
2: and Malibu was more of their getaway, beach-away, um, um, escape place. You know, the home by the fireside in my little
0: prairie dress with
1: petticoats. <laughs> so, yeah, but looking... And then it
0: changed back to the 60s in the form of 80s, Everything to me was English-driven, from the Beatles and the Stones to Sid Vicious and David Bowie. And I mean, uh, I, I think it's, it all started and still is going, but majorly from London
1: do you keep in touch with fashion today in In london London. yeah you think i was english you had a very english sensibility what about today betsy what what do you what do you think of what's going on around you today
0: well (laughs) um, it's very scary I, i mean i don't want to think that when i wake up i have to i've got a lot of unpacking to do so i'm getting my mind off it i'm very busy um I see my granddaughters through their windows. Yeah, my daughter's taking it over the top. Very serious. Know I mean, how and when to put the gloves on and off and the mask. But um, yeah, this is this is a once in a lifetime bizarre
1: Yes. We we got to get through get through it. We we will and we got to. And but it's a slow go
0: and a terrifying go. And but I'm still work I mean I, I love work. I still
1: I can't help myself. Betsy, I'd it's love to Betsy it's just called being inspired by stuff. I'd love to carry on. We have so much we could talk about, but I'm told that we only have a very short amount oh, of time. I know, Norman, we could Yeah, we could go uh, on forever. I'm so glad you're you and we have uh, uh,
0: memories about the same stuff and just be staying very, very, very
1: well. Yeah, and you, Betsy. Not going get us. And you, Betsy. You take care, my love. All right. Okay. Okay. Bye, bye. Bye now, Betsy. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. A sort of conversation with Miss Betsy Johnson. As you could hear, we were going to talk about her book. The details are up at lifeelsewhere.co. Thank you to my guests, and a large thank you to you for listening. Till next time, be well, be safe, and as always, please be nice. Bye bye.
0: You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lang. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C O.